With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, broadband talk radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank everyone for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be in the U.S. While many of um, you listeners uh, may be up to your eyebrows dealing with the uh, logistics of planning and building and operating community networks, um, there is one set of tasks that can't be ignored, even though many of, of us would probably rather be doing some other things and dealing with other issues, and that's the politics of broadband. Uh, specifically, uh, it's the activity that's going on in uh, the state legislatures across the U.S. and within or at the FCC um, as large telecom and cable companies work against uh, the, the best interest of the public um, when it comes to broadband. And uh, I think the most recent example has been this fight in uh, Georgia, which uh, luckily was turned back, where the telcos, or the giant telcos, tried to uh, kill municipalities' ability to uh, develop their own best solutions for, their, uh, for meeting their broadband needs. Uh, with us today to not only talk about what's going on with incumbents and their constant attempts to undermine communities getting better broadband, but also to explore some ways communities can fight back against these uh, challenges. Uh, our guest, David K. Johnston, is, a, uh, is an investigative journalist, a columnist, and book author who continually is out there exposing the anti-competitive actions of major corporations and the harm they bring to consumer interests. Uh, one of his books, uh, which many of you may be familiar with, uh, The Fine Print, How Big Companies Use Plain English to Rob You Blind, I believe is reflective of um, David's tenacity in exposing these attacks that threaten the public interest. David, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Craig. So let's talk about your book for a second, The, the Fine Print. And you mentioned before that you've got several in the works. But um, this caught my eye as well as a couple of columns that you wrote regarding uh, what, what's going on with telecommunication companies and how they're treating their subscribers in the rest of the country. So what is the focus of the book? Well, this is a book about monopolies, duopolies, oligopolies, and about how with the mainstream news media missing the story almost entirely – the laws of commerce in this country are very quietly being rewritten, not just in Washington, but in the state capitals and in the regulatory agencies. Uh, I teach the history of business regulation uh, one day a week in the law school, in the graduate business school at Syracuse. And many of the legal principles we take for granted today were developed literally thousands of years ago. And they are being overturned and shunted aside just as Adam Smith warned us in The Wealth of Nations in 1776, when he was the first to articulate market capitalism, 
is the natural tendency of businessmen to try to do, to avoid competition and to get rules set up that allow them to raise the prices they charge people and lower the prices they pay for labor, uh, sometimes through collusion, but whenever they can with the help of government. Mm -hmm. So it's basically uh, avoiding their fair share, as it were, but also also reshaping or trying to reshape the competitive landscape in their favor. Yeah, and I don't so much. I'm not big on the idea of fair share, but absolutely, it is avoiding competition. And surprisingly, they have managed to sell the idea to legislators and a large segment of the public that, for example, we have a vibrant telecommunications uh, system in America. What absolute utter nonsense! Um, uh, most people, wherever they live, have two options. They can get telephone service from a traditional telephone company. AT&T and Verizon control uh, something like uh, two-thirds of the entire landline business. Or they can buy a landline telephone, like the one I'm talking to you on right now, through their cable television company. That's a duopoly, not a vibrant competitive market. Now, then the companies will come along and say, well, yes, but once you're connected to the Internet, you can go to Vonage or to Skype or to various other suppliers. But the reality is that it is the very high prices we are paying to get access to the telecommunication system that is very limiting. And in many places in America, the plan to put us on very high-speed fiber optic lines of the kind that are everywhere in South Korea, in France, in many other countries they will come to large parts of America, including where I live, exactly never under current law. Mm -hmm. And so basically we have a situation in which uh, there is the illusion of competition, but not the reality of competition. That's exactly right. The assertion and the claim of competition and, and not the reality of it. And at the same time, in and this is, I think, one of the most pernicious problems around very few Americans seem to be aware that they have had a legal right since 1913 to telephone service. Uh, it's known as universal service. And that right is being legislated away. And it's being legislated away uh, under the guise that either there's competition, you have choices, or there's technological improvements, uh, but also in a way that takes away your reliable unlimited usage telephone and replaces it in some places or will replace it with cell phones. Now, if you live in, say, the hollers of uh, Appalachia, mm -hmm. if you live in uh, the mountains in the West, uh, even if you live in, in many urban environments, cell phones don't work everywhere, and they charge you by the minute for them, and they're not nearly as reliable as the old copper wire technology. There are literally telephones in use in America today with copper wires that were put in place in the 19th century. Wow. Wait, 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 I'm sorry. Did you say we're talking on wires that have been around since the 19th century? Uh, sure. The first telephones were installed in the 1870s, and there are copper wire telephones around that still operate from lines put down before the year 1900. Well, uh, I'm talking to you right now over a system out of my house where these wires were put into my house in, when it was built 61 years ago. I could go over to my neighbor's house where his phone was 
uh, system was put into his house when it was built in 1905. And it still works more than 100 years later. But AT&T stopped investing in that system by their own account more than 15 years ago. And because of the depreciation schedules on tax returns, that means they have completely 100% written off this system. But I've talked to people in California, uh, where I lived for 36 years, who've called up and said, you know, there's something wrong with my wireline telephone. It's not working right. And instead of repair service, they get immediately transferred to the sales department for voice over Internet protocol phones. And they're told, well, listen, if you'd like to buy this bundle of packages that we have today, we can provide you with Internet, cable, and telephone service all in one package. We can have someone out to your house as early as tomorrow morning. If you say, no, I just want my nice, reliable copper wire telephone that works even when there's a storm and all the power goes out, I want that fixed, they'll say, uh, gee, I, I don't know when we can get out there. Uh, let me see if I can find somebody who can take your call. Hmm. So we're, Now, we're it used to be that we had a regulatory system that said, no, no, you have to repair people's phones, you have to keep the service going, you have to be out there right away, and we've allowed all that to deteriorate. In California, where you are, um, so I guess it's six years ago now, uh, Dr. Robert Harris, a professor of business at UC Berkeley, who made a fortune by becoming a professional witness for big companies, uh, testified before the California Public Utilities Commission that the market will guarantee that prices will be reasonable because there's robust competition. And he said that if they were to remove price caps that the state of California had in place at the time for ancillary services, things like uh, call waiting, uh, third-party calling, call forwarding, voicemail, things like that. Uh, he said, if you if you remove those price caps, quote, the stupidest thing, end quote. Think about that phrase. He said, quote, I am firmly convinced the stupidest thing that those two big companies, then SBC, now AT&T, and Verizon could do would be to raise prices. So the California Public Utilities Commission at the time, led by the former president of a big utility, uh, including on its board a former big uh, cell phone company uh, lawyer, and uh, a former underwriter for utility company um, stocks and bonds. That's the majority of the commission, right out of the industry. They lifted the price caps, and immediately, almost immediately, the prices of those ancillary services were raised between double and 600%. And nobody asked the obvious question, which is, if you have no plan to raise prices, in fact, if it would be, as your witness says, the stupidest thing to raise prices, why do you care if there's a price cap? <laughs> that would have been logical now, wouldn't it? It certainly would have. And, and, and so all across the country, what's happening is the – the, your legal right to a telephone has been taken away already in a whole bunch of states, uh, Wisconsin, Alabama, Texas, North Carolina, Florida, and pretty much in California. If you live in a rural area, we are approaching the day when the only service you're going to have is cell phone service, and it's probably not going to be very good. Um, if you get into a dispute with a phone company in many states, they can't do anything to help you. In New Jersey, the legislature passed a law requiring Verizon, one company, 
to wire the 70 largest cities. Now remember, Verizon, I'm sorry, New Jersey is the most urban state in America. All right? Mm-hmm. It, and, and to get an idea of how few 70 cities is, there are about 80 cities in Los Angeles County, California. New Jersey, much bigger than L.A. County, uh, has many more than 70 cities, but they're required to wire those 70 cities. So if you live outside of those 70 cities, live in another city or, or one of the rural areas, you are scheduled to get fiber optic service never. In addition, this law doesn't require them to serve anybody. So one of the stories that I tell in the fine print is of a beautiful apartment building in northern New Jersey whose owners have worked very hard to keep it lovely and nice, and all of whom are prosperous and can afford fiber optic service. So they said to Verizon, listen, we'd all like to have your fiber optic service, uh, but we want to discuss with you where you're going to wire in our building because of its architectural and interior design features. And Verizon told them, we don't negotiate. We punch holes where we want to and refuse to wire the building. Among the people who live in that building, the chief ratepayer advocate for the state of New Jersey, the deputy attorney general whose job is to advocate for ratepayers, for customers, with Verizon. Now, she will not lift a finger to do anything about this. She's behaved absolutely perfectly. I don't want somebody to think cynically what's going on. I found out about this and reluctantly got them to acknowledge the truth of this story. Well, after I wrote about this, I figured, well, some politically smart person at Verizon will read this, and they will immediately say, hey, listen, I don't care what our overall policy is. Go get that building wired. No. No. And I know that some senior executives at Verizon know about it because I've heard back about it. Uh, They haven't done a thing. Now, if Verizon is so arrogant that they will utterly disregard both the profit interests they have in these uh, lucrative customers and the upset they've created by going after the chief ratepayer, what chance do you, Mr. Settles, have if Verizon or AT&T simply says, yeah, we run a wire right past your street, but we're not hooking you up for for Wi-Fi, I mean, for uh, fiber optic service, because we're just not going to do it. You're utterly powerless in, in front of them under these laws that they have had written for their benefit. And that's really, Craig, what deregulation is code for. Uh, Deregulation has been all the rage in the media now since the late 70s. It grows out of theories heavily promoted by the Chicago School. And by the way, I'm not an economist, but I went to the Chicago School and I studied at the Chicago School 40 years ago this year on a fellowship. And uh, deregulation really means new regulation written by the companies, written for the companies, written against the interests of consumers, and in most cases passed into law and put into the regulatory apparatus with little to no coverage in the mainstream media. And where there is, that coverage largely comes from the PR people, or as we call them in my business, the flacks from the companies, who see to it that that coverage gets their side of the argument across with as minimal mention as possible of any criticism by you know those rabble out there who might not understand how important it is for to have these new regulations. Mm-hmm. So would it be correct to use the term the pillaging of America? I mean, basically, that's what we're dealing with in this 21st century. I mean, it's not like the days of old when, you know, hordes of armies came through and literally burned down towns and whatnot. But it's still 
pillaging the landscape nevertheless. Yes, and, and, and you know, the, the fine print, Craig, is, is uh, uh, the third in a trilogy of books. Perfectly Legal is about how the tax system actually operates. It's not at all about what you read about in the news media every day. Uh, our tax system actually subsidizes the super wealthiest people in America. And there are some people listening to this, I'm sure, and saying, what are you talking about? The top 1% pay most of the taxes. No, they don't. Um, under our tax system, if you are really, really wealthy, the payment of taxes becomes voluntary because you can arrange your finances not to have what the law calls realized income. And that's all you're taxed on is realized income income. The reason the tax code is 70,000 pages with all of its regulations has nothing to do with you and me. It has to do with all of the devices put in place to either delay, defer, or eliminate the realization of income. The second book, The Free, Free Lunch, which came out uh, five years ago, is about uh, uh, all of the devices that subsidize the super rich. Uh, Warren Buffett's two-thirds of a billion-dollar interest-free loan, only half of which is due back to the government in, I think it's 34 years. Um, whole industries that I identify and companies that I name that don't make any profit in the marketplace, they only make money by mining the public treasury. Uh, we now know from research by uh, Professor Kenneth Thomas that at a minimum, Every American family of four is paying $900 a year in state and local subsidies to big corporations. Um, the New York Times recently came up with a little bit bigger number, uh, which is almost $1,000 a year. But it, whatever you count, it's an enormous number. The average family of four's weekly take-home pay is less than $900. So basically, every family of four in America, on average, is handing over more than a week's take-home pay to corporate America just in state and local subsidies before getting to the federal ones. And then the third book, so taxes, subsidies, and then the third book, uh, the fine print, Restraint of Trade. And the common theme to all of these is that the very, very wealthiest Americans, not every one of them, but as a group, have learned something very, very crucial. It is easier to mine the public treasury for gold than to take it out of the mountain and a lot easier than earning it in the marketplace. And that's what's going on. The reason that the number of lobbyists in Washington has gone from uh, a few hundred when I was born to 35,000 until they rewrote the rules so a bunch of people could unregister, so now it's only 17,000, is that all these companies have figured out that they just get the right rule written uh, get a slight change in a regulation, they can damage their competitor, benefit themselves, earn bigger profits than a competitive market would allow, because if there's anything businessmen hate, it's the rigors of the competitive market, and they've been getting government to damage, destroy, thwart, interfere with the competitive market. Huh. That's pretty pretty sobering stuff. Um, I guess it sort of begs the question, where do we go or how do we go about trying to um, fight back? I mean, you're just well, the very first thing people have to do is, is know this is going on. 
and and unfortunately they don't. I mean, I and I I spent forty years of my life working for the biggest and best papers in this country, including the San Jose Mercury, the Los Angeles Times, and the New York Times, and they're not reporting what's going on here. There is no single reporter, not one in the mainstream media, who covers an agency called FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And this little agency has enormous power over your pocketbook. And interestingly, it is not funded with your tax dollars. It is funded with fees that are imposed on various utility and energy companies. And its budget's been growing like crazy until this last year because those companies want FERC because it helps them raise prices and make bigger profits. And here's how slick this outfit is. FERC imposed a rule. This isn't Congress that is taxing. This is a tax rule. FERC imposed a rule that requires customers using anything shipped through a pipeline. So that's diesel, gasoline, natural gas to pay the corporate income taxes of the companies that own pipelines. And have you seen those ads on TV with a very attractive woman about the natural gas industry and America's pipeline infrastructure, the largest in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, well, that industry, you are forced to pay them not just their income tax, which would be 35% of their profits, but what's called a grossed-up income tax. Because if you give them 35% to pay the taxes, then you've got to give them taxes on the taxes and, there's ta- and the profits, and then taxes on the profits to pay the taxes. So the real tax rate you pay for state and local is, well, in the one court case we have, the model example, it was 75%. So if you made a $100 profit, you had to give them $75 to cover the taxes. There's one little wrinkle about this. Ronald Reagan signed a law in 1986 exempting this industry from the corporate income tax. Hmm. Wouldn't it be nice? I mean, just think about that for a minute. Wouldn't it be nice if you could get somebody else to pay your income taxes? How about your next-door neighbor? Congress passes a bill. Your next-door neighbor has to pay your income taxes for you. It'd be really nice for you, wouldn't it? That would be be a, a special kind of moment. Yeah, but pretty awful for your next door neighbor. It kind of well, that them. and that's what's happening here. You're paying their taxes now. Overall, I calculate it's about three point three billion dollars a year. The Congressional uh, Budget Office has an estimate that's much lower, but that's because they don't count the gross up; they only count the nominal figure because uh, they're not using utility law; they're using uh, basic tax law. Um, but $3.3 billion a year is a lot of money to be on the receiving end of. But if you divide it up among Americans, it's $0.03 cents a day. So if somebody steals $0.03 cents a day out of your pocket, if you're a family of four, now we're talking about about a dime a day, a little over a dime a day, uh, are you going to notice? No. Are you going to go to war over that? Of course not. But if this industry can take a dime a day from the average family of four, and another industry takes a dollar, and another takes 15 cents, and another one, the cable and telecommunications industry, takes on average more like 50 bucks a month that they shouldn't be getting. Now you're talking big money, and you can begin to see why a narrow group of people at the very, very top are doing so well and everyone isn't. And just recently, I, uh, I broke this story from the official government data where I simply took the uh, average income of the bottom 90% and compared it to the average income 
of the top 10%, 1%, and the 1% of the 1%. That's the Mitt Romney, Bill Gates, way at the top crowd. $8 million of annual income up to, we literally have people in America now who make as much as $4 billion a year. Mayor Bloomberg in New York makes more than $2 billion a year in, in income. And here's what it shows. Uh, the bottom 90% have fallen back to the lowest level of income they've had since 1966 when Lyndon Johnson was president. Mustangs were brand new, Star Trek had just aired, and one of the kindergartners going to school in um, Honolulu was Barack Obama. From 1966 to 1959, adjusted for inflation, the average income of the bottom 90% of Americans went up by $59. Five bucks a month, not even five bucks a month, four ninety-five a month. The top ten. Now imagine, imagine that's one inch. Okay, there's a one-inch bar growing up from the floor of the table. That's the vast majority. They all got an inch per household. The top ten percent's line is 163 feet. The top one percent's line is 884 feet, and the top one percent of the top one percent just short of five miles. The tax burden on the bottom 90% is essentially the same as it was in 1966. It's changed very minimally. But the, because Social Security taxes went up and offset the declines in income taxes. Hello? Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm sorry. Okay, sorry, the line went dead for a second. But the top 1% of the top 1%, their tax burden has fallen by 60%. So not only did their income grow five miles to one inch before taxes, but their tax burden fell 60% while the bottom 90%'s tax burden was virtually unchanged. You want to know why? You know, the, the new standard of the super rich in America is to own his and her jumbo jets. And and they do. Sheldon Adelson, the man who financed Newt Gingrich's campaigns, uh -huh. he owns two personal 747s, one of which is equipped so that his youngest heirs can skateboard in the sky. Really? It's because, yes, it's because our system, not market economics, not the competitive market, not building better mousetraps, is creating a whole class of people at the very top. Now, there are people who come along who create and invent new things, and God bless them. I'm glad that we have, you know, Bill Gates and um, uh, uh, the, the late Steve Jobs and other people who have created new products and better mousetraps and better services. But think of what big new business has been created now in the last 12 years in America what the Harvard Business School calls the gazelles, the businesses that come out of nowhere and grow like crazy, like FedEx or Microsoft. Mm -hmm. We haven't been creating those for years. What we're doing instead is we are creating a system that benefits speculators. That's what hedge funds are. Speculators who use borrowed money. That's what hedge funds are. Um, offshore uh, 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 investment vehicles that are designed to cream the market, not invest in building factories and creating jobs and doing research. Uh, that's what our whole system is moving towards, and it's moving away from productive, competitive businesses. So it's a it's an accurate thing to say then that the 
telcos and the cable companies, you know, they talk a lot about creating uh, innovation in broadband. Really, if if we sort of look at the last 10 years, um, we should expect little in the way of innovation, much in the way of destructive anti-competitive behaviors, and that's basically how they're going to make money rather than creating the next Skype or Facebook or whatever. Well, I mean, I, I you know, I hope that we see a lot more innovation, but in reality, our policies are sending that away. Um, and and this is, I, I think, a really a, a serious problem, and it's another one that the mainstream media are just utterly failing to cover. And by the way, most politicians, you know, they're not really better informed than anybody else, and there's more than a few of them who are really stupid. Uh, and I say this having interviewed more than 100 members of Congress and the Senate over the last 20 years. Um, um, they they have no idea what they're doing. I went to I live in Rochester, New York, the original boomtown. That's this is the place the term boomtown was invented for back in the 1820s and 1830s. And I went to a, a, a lecture here by the late Jonah uh, Jonah Folkman, the researcher who figured out that the reason. Uh, Everybody has tumors in their body, but some of them can grow like crazy and kill you as they develop the ability to create blood vessels to feed themselves. And he told the story in this lecture uh, uh, called the Marvin Hoffman Lecture. He told the story of how he had this incredibly brilliant young scientist, smartest guy, most insightful scientist he'd ever had. And he called him in his office in his lab one day and said, you are not doing work anywhere near your capability. You are banned from this laboratory. You're on the payroll, but you are banned. You may not step foot in here until you have gone to the library and found something worthy of your mind. And when you've persuaded me of that, I will put you back into the lab. So this kid goes away. He works on it. He comes back. Now, uh, Falkman, is, his work led to all these statin drugs, the ones that have restored eyesight for some people who have mm-hmm. wet macular degeneration, and they deal with the people with heart disease and other things. And this young man comes back and uh, explains that he's come up with a theory about a whole deeper level of the molecular structure of what's going on with the statin drugs. And Falkman, as he tells the story, says, that's absolutely brilliant, and that's exactly what I want you to do. And then they go and they try to get funding. They go to the National Institutes of Health, which are so strapped for money that about 80%, maybe it's 90% now, of the top-graded projects are not being funded. They're turned down. They go to various foundations. They're turned down. They go to the drug companies. They're turned down. This young man gets on a plane and goes to his home country. He's able to get a meeting with the top scientific people in his home country, presumably because he has some kind of connection to them. They tell him to uh, listen to, his, to what he wants, and he wants a huge budget and a huge lab and a lot of people. And they tell him to go back to his hotel. And a couple of days later, they invite him back, and they tell him he's getting everything he asked for. The country, by the way, is China. Hmm. Somehow the communist oligarchs, people who believe the state should own the means of production, have figured out something we haven't, which is you have to invest in the future, and you've got to put money into research and under improving human knowledge, improving human knowledge if you want to have fortunes in the future. Now, his idea may not pay off. It may not produce something. On the other hand, if it does, all of those royalties, all of those profits, they're not going to accrue here in the U.S. They're going to go to China. 
There are other researchers like this I've since found who have gone to China and India during the whole Bush administration nonsense about stem cell research. There were research projects that left here and went to India. And that's where the future is. And by the way, the fortunes that will be made in advances in biology will vastly exceed the enormous digital fortunes that we've seen come out of Silicon Valley West and the I-28 corridor, or 128 corridor in, in um, Massachusetts and, and other places. So coming back to the, um, to the issue of uh, mounting counterattacks or some way holding the line or whatever, you know, one of the things you mentioned is uh, knowledge. I and mean, if you don't know you're being ripped off, you're kind of, you know, behind the eight ball before you even get started. Um, another issue clearly is that uh, when you're being ripped off for a buck here and a buck there, uh, it's hard to, you know, to, to justify really the time that it would take to correct the wrong. So that kind of leads it to our politicians, who you, you know, rightfully mention are not necessarily brighter than the rest of us and dumber than some than a lot of us, but uh, some of them. But uh, can they somehow be forced to make a difference? I mean, I look at. Um, Senator Warren, on on one sort of on the national level, I mm -hmm. look at the um, uh, Elizabeth Warren, right, and and I look right. at the, the legislators in Georgia who turned back this latest attempt by AT and T and company to outlaw municipal networks, and I say, you know, there are victories. But oh yes, well nothing is nothing's black and white. Of course, there, of course, there are going to be victories, and and we can fix this problem. We, look, we, we, we have a constitution that enshrines the ownership and sale of human beings in at least 12 places. We got rid of slavery in this country. Right. Uh, women had the right to vote in some places in pre-colonial America, in, in colonial America. We got women back the right to vote. Um, more than a century ago, the Jerry Falwells and Pat Robertsons of the day were going around saying uh, of child labor laws, those promoting these laws are agents of the devil, for it is God's plan that these children should work in these factories. Well, we got child labor laws. We got terrific environmental laws signed by a Republican president, Richard Nixon. Hmm. But none of this will change unless a couple of things happen. The first step in the process is people have to have the information. That's why I write these books. And the, each book has drawn bigger efforts by corporate America to say to people, pay no attention to that book over there. Both the Edison Electric Institute, which represents the corporate-owned electric utilities, and the National Cable Television Association immediately went after my book when it came out. The New York Times, where I worked for 13 years and was a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, they wouldn't even review this book. And the previous book uh, was reviewed very, very negatively by somebody who didn't tell readers what was in it at all, and who uh, left the impression with a number of readers who got a hold of me that I was part of some cabal within the Democratic Party promoting a particular agenda. These were organizations I didn't even know the names of, but what's hilarious about it is I'm a registered Republican, and I work from my home in Rochester, New York. I mean, I have nothing to do with politics in Washington. Couldn't be less interested in the machinations of the parties. I care about policy, Okay. Mm -hmm. And yet the Times actually published this about one of their own reporters. 
which tells you a lot about how much the establishment does not want to hear these things. Elizabeth Warren, who I've known for more than 20 years and have written about for many years, the attacks on her by Wall Street for simply trying to insist on fair play and reasonable rules on on the financial sector, and, and we've been regulating the financial sector for 4,000 years at least, um, it, it, it is it, it, there. There is a, a determination by people who will benefit from these things that they will do anything they can to quash, um, uh, discredit uh, people who present facts that aren't counter their interests. So the first thing is people need to know about this. That's why I write these books. I'm mm-hmm. not going to make any more money than I've made off these books. And anybody who cynically thinks I'm trying to make money off the books, I've been paid for them. I've been well paid for them. I'm never going to make any more money off of them. Go read them. You can get them at the library for free. You may discover, as is the case at many libraries, that I'm on the long waiting list. But you know, but if you read them, then the next step is people have to tell other people so that the information gets around. Once that begins to happen, once there's a critical knowledge of this, you know, it changes things. People knowing things changes things. And ultimately, we, what we have to do is we've got to get to the, to the two issues that are killing us economically and politically. One is campaign finance. A narrow group of people, what I call the political donor class, finance politicians. And if you don't play ball with them, they'll find somebody they'll run against you. Look, at, That's what the Club for Growth is in the Republicans. It is to discipline Republicans who don't toe the line. The second problem is the creation of these gerrymandered districts that are 90% Democrat or 90% Republican, or in any event designed to be a Democrat will always win this district, a Republican will always win that one, instead of 50-50. Now, the Republicans have control of the House right now, but did you know that in the if you add up all the votes in all the congressional districts last fall, Democrats got 5 million more votes than Republicans? Right. So we've rigged the system, and of course now there's this big effort underway to take away the franchise from people. From you know, we've seen the, the for a series of election cycles now. Students, uh, poor people, especially black people, whether they're poor or or middle class, in various ways, uh, and Hispanics to take away the vote. And that's indicative of the efforts of a minority, uh, an economic minority to impose its will on everybody else. Hmm. It's um, <clears throat> going to be an interesting struggle for this, I can see. Um, not to change too dramatically from, from this train, because I do want to come back to a couple of these points. I have a question in the, uh, from, the, from the chat room about um, global fiat currency. Um, yep. which is actually, I'm learning about for the first time. What is that, and then what are some of your thoughts on that? Um, okay. Well, fiat currency simply means money that's backed by the good faith and credit of a government, not by gold. I mean, I'm being simplistic here. But, um, you know, back when we were on a gold standard, we had panics. We had deflations. We didn't have a lot of economic growth. Uh, when we began to recognize that money, as Adam Smith taught, is not value, it is only a medium of exchange, we began to do much better. The world is enormously wealthier today than it was even at the time of the Bretton Woods Conference after World War II. Um, 
no sovereign with monopoly control of its currency can ever go broke in its own currency. The United States of America is a sovereign. The Constitution gives the government not monopoly control of the currency. The U.S. government cannot go broke. Now, that doesn't mean that it can't cause us problems, but in the last 12, 13 years, the debt of the federal government has tripled, and the federal government's borrowing rate has fallen by well more than half. Think about that. We've tripled our debt, and the interest rate keeps falling. There's an enormous demand out there for American borrowing. Uh, the, the important issue is you have to manage your currency in a way that is credible, that people believe that your full faith and credit as a government is worth something. We're nowhere near using our capacity. Uh, when the country was founded, 80% of the first government, and I'm talking here about the republic we live in today, the second American republic, the constitutional government, not the Confederacy government, 80% of its spending was on the debt from the failed confederacy, which had uh, I'm sorry, confederation government, which had no power to tax and no power to control commerce. Um, at the end of World War II, we were much more heavily in debt than we are now. We never paid off the debt from World War II. If you look at it as a share of our total debt, it's bupkis. It doesn't matter. Um, and what we should be doing right now is using our currency and low interest rates to do work that we have put off for years and years and years, fixing our infrastructure, building our roads and highways and bridges before we have calamitous disasters, which we will, like the Johnstown flood of 1899. Good morning. You know we're going to have another one. It's just a matter of time. I mean, we have all sorts of dams out there that are, are rated officially by the government as dangerous and in risk of collapse. And we, we've had bridges collapse. We've had uh, railroad bridges collapse left and right. I think it was just a day or two ago. I was reading about yet another railroad bridge that collapsed because we're not taking care of our infrastructure. This is making us less efficient. It is costing us money. Uh, I wrote a column, uh, when I was a reporter at the LA Times, I occasionally wrote what was called a reported column in the feature section, and I wrote one in 1985 or 86 about how I just paid, once again, the new California road tax. What's the new California road tax? Well, that's uh, the uh, tax that you pay to alignment shops. Because while California never had potholes in its roads before Proposition 13, now the city of Los Angeles and other cities are so starved for money that instead of repairing and replacing roads on a 40-year cycle, because that's the way standard they were built to, the city of L.A. was at that time rebuilding them on a 120-year cycle. Mercy. And you could just go to the phone book, as I did, and show that the number of alignment shops had increased because people were getting their cars knocked out of alignment. You weren't saving any money. You are just spending it somewhere else. Interesting. Interesting. Um, let, me, uh, <clears throat> let me ask a question here about um, tactics. You know, we've, we've, we've been very getting some good points on, you know, how to, to counteract some of these activities by the incumbents. If I look at um, making the case that broadband is an economic development uh, asset, that it is which a, it is, it is which it is, and that you know communities need to have the right to make their own local um, case or their own local solutions that address their economic development needs. 
do you think this can gain some kind of momentum? Because, I mean, we're arrayed against lots of money, lots of legislation already in place, lots of regulations going by the wayside. Is the banner of, you know, broadband as economic development tool or asset, do you think that's strong enough to counter what we're seeing happening in some of these state legislatures? Well, in specific communities, this has been done and it can be done. Uh, in the fine print, I tell the story of Lafayette, Louisiana. It is the capital of Cajun country. And more than 100 years ago, when the country's being electrified, Wall Street had no interest in going to uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. It just wasn't big enough and was too far away from other urban centers. So the town fathers, and it was all the town fathers back at that time, there were no mothers were not involved, <laughs> voted to um, create the Lafayette utility system, and they built their own electric system. They, uh, uh, I guess it's 20 years ago now, built their own Internet and cable system, and it's much less expensive. I tell the story of Glasgow, Kentucky, a town whose name implies the uh, tight-fisted nature of its founder's Scottish heritage. Uh, people there were paying tremendous prices to what is now Comcast for cable service, so they created a municipal cable system. The cable industry immediately attacked this once they built it and said, it's losing money. Well, you know, it was losing money. But the only reason it was losing money was the amount spent on lawyers to fight Comcast or right. its predecessors, script, mm -hmm. telescripts. Uh, in little tiny Scottsboro, Alabama, they created a system that was unbelievably cheaper than the monopoly prices. And as soon as they set it up, the monopolists offered people next to free Internet and, and cable TV. And the, the, the leader there, a guy named Jimmy Sandler, was smart enough to write a letter to every customer in town and say, hey, listen, if you take their offer and we shut down, they're just going to raise the prices back to where they were. You've got to stick with us and ignore that offer. Well, they did, and today people have saved a fortune. Now, you, you're running this show from Alameda, California, on a little island in San Francisco Bay that has municipal power. You're not getting it from PG&E. You have a municipal power system. Right. That means that the power poles, the conduits, the underground structures are all in place that Alameda could choose to create a municipal fiber, fiber system. And by the way, in many places in America, there is a municipal fiber system, but it's only used by police, fire, and the city government. Right. Uh, there's no reason that we couldn't uh, uh, turn these into viable enterprises. And in every case that I have looked at, these local systems have lower prices, faster speeds, better quality service. Now, where I live in Rochester, New York, you know, right, the home to Kodak, Xerox, the headquarters has moved, but the company's basically still here, uh, Bausch and Lomb, and a huge number of very entrepreneurial, high-tech little companies. When I do national television, I have to do it by satellite because we don't have fiber optics here sufficient to do live TV. That's ridiculous. And so uh, the studio gets paid hundreds of dollars because of its satellite setup each time we do it. The satellite company gets a fee of God only knows how much. I'm sure it's at least $1,000 a show. When if we had a fiber optic system, I could probably put one right in my house and just uh, buy a camera and broadcast from my home. The products and services that we would create if we had the kind of Internet that South Koreans have, and by the way, we pay 16 times what they pay 
for our Internet, or the Japanese have where per bit of information we pay 38 times what they pay, or what the French have where typically in America for a triple play package you pay four times what the French pay all over the country, not, not just in Paris, but all over the country. Um, we, we would see all sorts of economic growth, but just as no one would build um, a jet engine until we had electricity, internal combustion engines, and knew how to make aluminum from bauxite rocks, nobody's going to invent the products that we could have on the real information superhighway until it exists. Mm -hmm. Do you think the uh, Google approach could work? I mean, here's a case in which Google, uh, all of, albeit they've got more money than you know anyone short of Bill Gates probably, um, but they basically walk in and the community – uh, embraces them and says, look, you know, if you guys will run a bigger, better, faster, cheaper network, then come on, let's let's work it out. And they've partnered and all the rest of that with Google to get this thing off the ground. Um, is that is that a viable strategy? Is Google well, I think it's a very good strategy in the sense, Craig, that it, it is going to embarrass, hopefully, and show how bad the AT&T, what I call the emerging cartel of AT&T, Verizon, Cox, Comcast, Time Warner, Bright House is providing uh -huh. um, it, it, to show how awful it is. Uh, you know, if, if you live in Time Warner country, you see these ads all the time for their roadrunner service and blazingly fast Internet. When I was in South Korea last summer, I had a, a young man who I was talking with uh, who had been to the U.S. And he said, what is this blazing fast? I mean, are they kidding? Um, uh, we, we, everything that incur, that shows how the monopolists are providing us with low quality, high price service is a good thing. It's competition. But the best strategy would be for Congress to say it's the policy of the government of the United States that we will have universal uh, internet service. It will be the fastest in the world, and then we have to pay for it. And we do have to pay to build it, but it's it, we're not it's not that much money. And by the way, that's a huge jobs program. And do do does does everybody who lives in the middle of nowhere Panhandle Texas want or need super high speed internet service? No. But the national benefits to creating a one system uh, in terms of standards that everybody can use that has the capacity we were promised in that famous uh, ad by Quest. Uh, you know, the uh, old salesman walks into a hotel, Roy's Cafe, in the middle of the Mojave Desert, and there's a young woman behind the desk, and he says, got rooms? King-size beds. Room service? Coffee and donuts in the lobby. Entertainment? And she looks up and says, every movie ever made in every language, in every room. <laughs> And he says, how is that possible? Quest, ride the light. If we got that, the economic benefits would be tremendous. There's one study that suggests that it would add $2.5 trillion to our annual economic output to do this. Our current annual economic output is about $16 trillion, and this was done when it was actually around 13 So you're talking about a 15% increase. Think how much better off we'd be if we had an economy 15% bigger with the same population. Assume they're wrong by half. It only grows 7 or 8%. That's enough to have full employment in this country. It's enough to reduce the federal budget deficit, which is rapidly shrinking. Uh, 
very rapidly shrinking. Uh, 91% of people don't know it. That's why I'm focusing on that. Under Obama, it's just been coming down very quickly. Uh, it could, we could reduce it to zero. Hmm. Well, let me ask this other question before I forget, because it relates to the to the Google situation in in a sense. Um, one of your columns that I read talks about how bad it is, or you know, not very bright it is, to for communities to offer all kinds of subsidies, uh, subsidies and benefits to bring large companies to town because the companies will come to town and screw them over. I mean, that's I'm paraphrasing very crudely, but. That was the essence of the message: is that this is not the brightest way to go. Um, you want to elaborate on that a little bit more? Probably maybe pretty. Sure. I mean, bit, but, let me uh, let me just give you the the example of the worst system, the worst subsidy I can think of. One that, by the way, the New York Times completely missed in its huge project in December that got all its attention, and which they had been criticized for missing, and they still missed it. Um, here in New York State where the state constitution has prohibited all gifts of cash and credit to corporations since 1846, and which voters approved that by two-to-one margins in 1846, 1878, 1938, and 1967. The hereditary ruler of Abu Dhabi is being given a minimum of $1.4 billion of the taxpayer's money in order to build a microchip factory near Albany on the Hudson River. Now, the company's argument is, well, we couldn't afford to build it in New York if it wasn't for the subsidy. And my answer is, well, then New York should reform itself, and you should go build it somewhere where you won't get the subsidy. Well, it just appeared in our local news here last night that in a cow county between Buffalo and Rochester, it's a cow county. I mean, there's nothing there. There's there's farming and a, a prison, Attica. Uh, the the county county commissioners have uh, voted to uh, have already spent thirty eight million dollars buying up farmland and clearing it in the hopes that they can get one of these factories too. And they were quoted as saying, "Well, our idea is we're going to create a new Silicon Valley along the I ninety Thruway, the New York State Thruway. Now, uh, from downtown San Jose to Redwood City, where Oracle is, is twenty miles on the uh, Highway one hundred one. Uh, from Albany to uh, Alabama, New York, the town where they're doing this, is 260 miles. I mean, it's just absurd. And what happens is these companies simply take the money. And in many cases, they then shut down the operation. They take the money. It, it was a bad idea to build it. It didn't work. Thyssen Krupp, the big uh, German steel company, got a billion dollars plus to build a steel mill in Mobile, Alabama. And they had this idea that they were going to integrate it with steel mills in Brazil and it doesn't work. Economically, it doesn't work. So they're now trying to find somebody to buy the place for them. These, these enormous deals, and there have been a whole number of half-billion-dollar-and-up deals, they are, they, they, if, simple answer, if it's a sound investment, the market will finance it. If it is not a sound investment, why should, taxpayer, why should taxpayers be forced to put money into it? If you don't believe in market economics, if you don't believe in capitalism, then all of this makes sense. But we're told by our leaders that we live in a free market capitalist system, and yet we operate under a system of corporate socialism. We take from the many to give to the few, and we invest in all sorts of very bad projects, projects you could sit down and figure out will not work from the get-go because the taxpayers are paying the bill. It's free money. 
Hmm. Free money from the perspective of the people getting it, not to you and me. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, how should we be leery then of a Google-type arrangement? Because I don't know if, if Kansas City gave Google any kind of I'm, – I'm sure there was some monetary value, but a lot of what they're doing is giving them access uh, and, and you know permitting and easing permitting and that kind of thing. But should we be leery even of a Google who, you know, some folks are looking at as a savior and they want to bring them to town to, to, you know, become the next Kansas City? Do we run the risk of, in essence, going down the same rat hole even with a benefactor like Google or a perceived well, benefactor? I, I'm in favor of things that, you know, make it easier where there isn't big risks of environmental damage and whatnot to get access to say, you know, you can use our polls, you can use our rights of way because those are very limited very valuable rights. You know, three of the people on the Forbes one on the first hundred of the Forbes 400 list are pipeline heiresses, um, uh, winners of what Donald Trump calls the Lucky Sperm Club, I guess. <laughs> but but in the case of something like Google's proposal, I haven't looked at detail in Google's proposal, except mm -hmm. to see that they are introducing we can do this better than the monopolists are. But sure, there are lots of questions we need to ask. You know, despite Google's motto, which is, I'm probably misphrasing it, but it's do no evil. Or words mm -hmm. to that effect, you know, we know that they have done evil. They've they've uh, you know turned over information to Chinese authorities and cooperated in various uh, schemes by the thugs who run that country. And so, it's important to recognize that whoever's doing something, you need to be careful and watch what they're doing and negotiate well and have transparency. But competition that shows how the monopolists, the cart the big cartel I talked about of the telcos and cable companies, that's fundamentally a good thing we want to encourage. And we want to encourage people to realize, hey, how come you're living in a town where you've got five megabyte speeds and you pay a premium for fifty and one town over they got a one gigabyte internet and they're paying twenty cents on the dollar? Hmm. Interesting. So we've got like all of two minutes and a little change left over. I want to ask one closing question here. Um, how much should communities fight for broadband in the face of all this that's going on with incumbents and what they're trying to do? You know, what how, to what length should communities go to fight this stuff? Um, it's a real. That's a real simple answer. If you didn't get a canal or railroad in the early 1800s, your city died. You you can go to parts of the upper plains and see towns where they, the railroad companies uh, wouldn't build near the town or the town built in the wrong place. They're gone. They're ghost towns. In the digital era that we live in, this is the central feature you need. The internet is what canals and railroads were in the eight in the eighteen hundreds. It is what highways and airports were in the nineteen hundreds, and in the two thousands. This is the technology you've got to have. You need reliable electric service, which the fine print tells a lot about how it's getting worse and why. And you need real high-speed, world-level Internet that's fiber optic and has what essentially is unlimited capacity. If you don't have it, well, you know, if you want to make your living uh, milking cows and, and uh, you know, turkeys from Turlock, as the TV radio ad said for years in California, mm. you know, I suppose you'll do okay, uh, but I suspect you'd be a lot more efficient if you had a high-speed Internet even trying to sell turkeys from Turlock to the rest of the world. Right. That's a good point. 
Um, David, this has been a marvelous conversation. Lots of great uh, data. I hope our listeners uh, take your advice about not only learning and opening up their mind, but also passing this on to other uh, friends and colleagues because there are battles to be fought and we've got to win them. So, but we can't win them unless people know what's going on. So, exactly. And thank you very much for the opportunity to tell more people about these issues that I think we need to understand so that we can get change that makes our democracy work better. Excellent. I'm all with you on that one. Uh, good luck in all your adventures and your next book and everything else. And, uh, again, thank you for, for being with us. Um, I also want to thank our audience for being with us today and, and for your continued support. Uh, I, myself, will be having a new book out at the Broadband Summit in mid-April, so that's why you're not seeing as many shows as, as I used to do. But hang in there, folks. There's more great stuff coming. Take care. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.